I have this, uh, this burning excitement in my heart about the final, the final chapter of the book of Ruth. And I want to share this with you today. And I'm going to read to you this last portion of the chapter, the part we didn't finish last week. And um, I'm just going to read to you from, from verse 11. This is uh, chapter 4 of the book of Ruth, verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. That little passage right there uh, has uh, some of that, that literary structure in it, the one we've talked about a few times as we've read through the book of Ruth together. And uh, it's called a chiasm. The chiastic structure is a literary structure that puts ideas, parallels ideas, and, uh, and sandwiches things in between them that are of importance. And so in this particular little short, very simple chiasm, you have a statement about Rachel and Leah that's mirrored by a, state, a, a statement about Tamar and Judah. And in the middle is the blessing that the people of Bethlehem give to Boaz. And that's the important part in that little statement, that little structure there, the, the part that's supposed to be emphasized by the structure of the language, which is the blessing, which says, may you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. So I want you to just pay attention to that because that's my prayer for you today. My prayer for you as a fellowship is that you will act worthily in our version of Ephrathah, and that we may be renowned in our village, our own version of Bethlehem. But in order to do that, in order for that to happen, in this case, there's a whole story that's gone on behind the scenes and that has now come to the front. Boaz is, he is obeying the Lord and the commandment of the Lord through Moses. And the the heart of the law, even more than the law itself. Boaz has discovered the heart of God, and he is implementing that in his own life and in his own core values. He is structuring his life according to God's moral system. And on account of that, he is blessed. I want us to build our lives and our decisions on the moral structure that God has designed. Because in doing so, we will be blessed. And in not doing so, we will assuredly not be blessed. As a fellowship, we have a unique identity in this community. God has given us a name. We don't compete against others. And God forbid that you should have a competitive spirit in you, in these matters. If we were playing soccer or softball, maybe that would be different. 
But when it comes to the household of faith, we have no heart of competition. If we do, we are not buying into the moral integrity of the kingdom of God. But we're building rather the kingdom of men. Please be aware that there are two kingdoms. And you are in a war for one and against another. And you will be in a war for one and against another. You must choose carefully which one you are building and which one you are tearing down. <laughs> because it is inevitable and necessary that you will love one and hate the other. Or hate one and love the other. That is how it works. You cannot have two masters and serve two masters, Jesus said. So we are looking to see the kingdom of God established in our world. And we are looking for a king. And on Palm Sunday, we're looking for a king like the people of Israel were looking for a king when Jesus rode into Jerusalem that day. And they shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They spoke their blessings, but they were not ready to walk in the integrity that God was calling his people to. Instead, they wanted a quick fix. They wanted a king who would do the work for them. A king who would come and who would annihilate all enemies. But in the kingdom that Jesus has inaugurated, he has given us the power to slay the enemy ourselves. And he has given us the responsibility to take our inheritance from the hand of a reluctant enemy who does not want to give up what Christ has procured at his own expense, at the cost of his life. The enemy does not want to give it up. We have the legal right and access to it, but we must fight for our inheritance. And so I tell you today, as we look for a king, please know that the king is born. Unto us a child is given. A son is born. The king comes into our hearts not as a victorious champion on a white steed, but as a baby that we must nurture. And the redemption in the book of Ruth is about a baby. A baby who is born, who brings redemption to a widow and her daughter-in-law, also a widow. To a bachelor, wealthy, prominent, but without an heir. The story is about a baby who gives a name to Bethlehem. And a purpose. If I can say this up front, it occurred to me that Bethlehem, the house of bread, which started out in a famine at the beginning of the book, ends up with a harvest, but more than a harvest. It starts out with barrenness, but ends up with a son. And Bethlehem, the house of bread, is the house of the sun. So let me encourage you as we start this journey today that we as a church 
if we focus on if we focus on the bread of Bethlehem, the provision, the the economics, the demographics and economics of the church. If we focus on that, I don't think we'll get to chapter 4. We might get to chapter 2. We might have a relationship with Christ who is our kinsman redeemer, but we might not know him as redeemer. We might know him as the one who provides our bread in time of need, but we won't know him as the one who gives us children. Our church is not to be a place where we are concerned with economics and potential, even vision. Our church needs to be a place where we nurture babies. Because the redemption comes not because the famine is broken. The redemption comes because the barrenness is broken. And the redemption of Bethlehem is not in the first generation. The redemption of Bethlehem is many generations later. When Bethlehem becomes famous as the city of David or the, the town from which David came, the origin of David, but much more than that. Micah chapter 4. Turn there. Micah chapter 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills that people shall flow into it and many nations shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. See the promise? The promise is there. But in chapter 5, have a look at how the promise is going to be fulfilled. In chapter 5, verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. They shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Bethlehem, Bethlehem Ephrathah. The promise of the mountain of the house of the Lord is going to be fulfilled shockingly 
not through mighty warriors and champions in Jerusalem, but it's going to happen through a woman giving birth in Bethlehem. Well, we know this story. We know this fulfillment of the story as Christ was born in Bethlehem to Mary and to Joseph. But not of Joseph, for he was of the Holy Spirit. And we know that this is fulfilled. But you must understand that the metaphor carries through into now, into this day and this age. God is looking for children. Jesus said, let the little children come unto me. God is looking for us to nurture. He's looking for us to disciple. He's looking for us to bring individuals deeper into relationship with him because it's in family, in the context of family, that the kingdom of God enters into this world. That is how the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of all the mountains. The core value of the kingdom of God, as we seek for a king, the core value of the kingdom is God is not to look for a champion who's going to be the best quarterback who's going to lead us to victory. The, the core value is widows and orphans that are widows and orphans no more because the body of Christ has become their parents. And it is to be demonstrated not only spiritually, but also in the natural, practical, pragmatic world. It is to be demonstrated in the way that we care for the children that are in our schools, our public schools. Do we pray for our public school kids? Because we should. Do we pray for our public school teachers? In the name of the Lord God in heaven, who rules over the earth, and the earth is his footstool. Pray, church, and seek the well being of our community. Nurture the people in our communities. Look for the orphan and give the orphan a home. Seek out the widows and take out of your wealth to provide for them so that they are in need no more. Now, the New Testament does give us some strong boundaries when it comes to social work and meeting the needs of those around us. For example, in the letters of Paul, he makes quite clear who is a widow and who is not, and which widows are eligible for help within the church. It makes for an interesting study, by the way, if you want to look at it. Turns out it was a big problem in the early church because at first, 
when the Spirit of the Lord hit the church at Pentecost in that upper room, man, there, was, there were no limits. It was just like the Holy Spirit came, and they didn't even know what to do with him. So they were spilling out onto the streets, and they were speaking in tongues and falling all over the place. Everybody thought they were drunk. And I'm sure that from, a, from a, a, an administrative standpoint, it was like a whole bunch of drunk people, probably, in the way that they took care of you. I mean, people were just selling their belongings, selling their land, bringing it, laying it at the feet of the elders. Elders were taking it, saying to the deacons, distribute this, give it there. And they were probably just handing it out willy-nilly as they were trying to figure out what are the parameters. Jesus, you just, <laughs> seems like we're supposed to just give to anybody who asks. And then it became more and more evident that with the generosity of the church comes a, a wickedness both for the giver and for the receiver. When the spirit of generosity falls upon us, we human beings are still, are still subject, it seems, to temptation. To make a big deal about our generosity so others can think we're better than we are. To be pompous and arrogant and proud about how wonderfully like Jesus we are so that we can hide our real lives behind our benevolence. But there's also another, another side to that story. The other side to that story is that there's a, um, a sense of entitlement which grows amongst the, the beneficiaries who look to the benefactors for more and more handouts and become lazy and don't want to do anything. And so it is that we as a church have to learn to be good parents. I mean, which parent gives their child anything they want anytime they want? Maybe the new parent. But have a couple of those little babies, and you might discover soon enough that you don't want to live the life that you have to live if you just give them whatever they want. Those little monsters will rule your lives with an iron rod. And so it is we have to discipline our children. But we don't abandon our children. We don't cast them off. We don't say, well, you worthless child, you asked for too much. Oliver Twist, please, sir, may I have some more? Out comes the whip. Out comes the rod. Lord, help us. No. If we nurture our culture, tedious job as it may be, it is possible that we may just provide a rich in us environment that the King of Kings might be born amongst us in our hearts. The sandwich in these verses gives us two interesting stories. Rachel and Leah is the first story, and you can read about them in Genesis. You kind of have to read a whole bunch about them, but for those of you who don't know, they were the wives of Jacob. And uh, yes, wives, it's true. Polygamy was a thing, and uh, it must never be a thing again. So please, Lord, what a disaster. But polygamy was a thing, and Jacob married two, two women, sisters, he intended to marry only one, but he got two. What a deal. 
His father-in-law tricked him. Not quite sure how that worked. But on the night of his wedding, he was given Leah as his, uh, as his bride, thinking it was Rachel. And in the morning, he discovered, oh, wait, you're not Rachel. Not quite sure, like I said, how that happened. But in the morning, he said, foul, wait, this isn't fair. I'm in love with Rachel, not Leah. Can't imagine how Leah felt. But Laban said, yeah, no, in our culture, the oldest must marry first and then the youngest. So you can have, you can have Rachel in a week, but, uh, but you're going to have to work seven more years for her. So these matriarchs of Israel, Rachel and Leah, they, uh, between the two of them, gave birth to 12 sons. Well, it's, it's a bit of a complicated story because they each had a handmaiden. And uh, in those days, the handmaiden was offered to the husband as uh, another bride. So he actually had four wives. Complicated biblical story. Good thing it didn't happen today. But between them... Twelve sons, who became the twelve tribes of Israel, the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. And there is righteousness in this story. There's beauty in this story. There's a love story between Jacob and Rachel. There's a beautiful love story. He loved her with everything in his being. And it's just such a, it's a hallmark love story. I mean, apart from the whole, you know, mix-up of the wife story. But anyway, it's a, it's maybe not hallmark. <laughs> Don't watch this one with your kids, folks. <laughs> but the love story is beautiful and tragic because Rachel was barren. And so into the story is woven, into the story of Boaz and Ruth is woven this theme of barrenness. The barrenness of Bethlehem in that it did not produce grain enough for harvest. So Eli Melech and his family had to leave and go to Moab to try and find their, their living, to make a, eke out a living in the, in, a, in the days of famine. That's just a metaphor of everything that was happening. And is it not a metaphor of our own lives? Is it not a metaphor of our Christian lives? I mean, God knows that decades ago, people were streaming into the churches during the Jesus movement. And, and what has happened to those days? We've become, we've become barren. How many people have come to Christ in this fellowship? We don't know. I wish we knew. I wish we could count. Have any? Some have. But we wish for more. We yearn for more. Do you pray for more? Pray that the Lord lift that famine, as it were, and bring his fruitfulness to our barrenness. But I'm telling you, that this book teaches us on a deeper level than the love story of Boaz and Ruth. It teaches us how to become fruitful for the kingdom of God. The story is about Boaz taking his responsibility and becoming the kinsman redeemer for the needy, for the ones who needed nurturing. And God blesses him by making him fruitful. His wife becomes fruitful. And he's blessed with this blessing of fruitfulness because Rachel, the barren one, God opened her womb too. And is it not true that Rachel's womb was opened by Joseph, who became the redeemer of his entire family? 
in a time of famine. The parallels in the story are rich and beautiful. Because God tells the same story again and again. If we're not so thick in the head that we can't hear it and see it. But in case you think that Rachel's story is a beautiful story, it's not. Rachel died and was buried at Ephrathah. Bethlehem. The matriarch. Joseph and Benjamin come from her. The first king of Israel will come from Benjamin. Saul. Not a good one. Because the king isn't supposed to come from Benjamin. The king's supposed to come from Judah. And that's why it needs to be coupled with another story, Rachel and Leah and the patriarch and the matriarchs of Israel, Boaz, may your offspring be, may your wife be to you like those who, from whom come the very riches of all of Israel. But at the same time, we're not just talking about a nation. We're talking about a king. And so the second portion it says, <laughs> may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So the blessing that the people give to Boaz, and they are speaking, by the way, under the unction of the Holy Spirit. They speak a blessing, but it is as if the Holy Spirit has taken the voice of the crowd and he has, he has put them together in a chorus, in a unison. And they are speaking out as if the Lord himself is speaking blessing over Boaz and Ruth. Because Boaz and Ruth have embodied the very essence of God's kingdom. Chesed, loyalty, faithfulness, chutzpah, courage, and willingness. The chesed, Rachel, Leah, the faithfulness of Judah, of, of, uh, of Jacob. The faithfulness of Jacob. The revelation of God to Jacob. Chutzpah. Tamar and Judah. Have you read the story of Tamar and Judah in Genesis chapter 38? What a strange place that chapter holds in the story. Shockingly, it's fit beautifully into a chiasm. If you take the story of, of Joseph from beginning to end, from the time when he's born and then his dreaming all the way through to the time when he dies at the end of the book of Genesis and you work backwards in, inside, you take the parallels and work, work in, you will find that Genesis 38 is the ham and the sandwich, the, the, the lamb. I keep saying ham. It's, there's no ham in the Jewish faith. The lamb and the sandwich, the meat in the middle is Genesis 38, the strangest story in the Bible. The story of Judah, who has abandoned his family and his faith. If you take a look at the story, the beginning of the chapter, you're going to find that Judah has left his family. He is married to a Canaanite. He has found a friend who's not a good friend, by the way. He is a good friend and he's a bad friend at the same time. He's a good friend in that he's a loyal friend, but he's a bad friend because he's drawn him away from his calling. 
Judah is the next in line to carry the promises of God, which God made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. How is he the next in line? Well, Reuben, the firstborn, he slept with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And so he is no longer to be the one who carries the line to Messiah. Simeon and Levi, the next ones in line, they have blood on their hands because they slaughtered the men of Shechem after their sister was raped. And they have been excommunicated, as it were, from the line, the bloodline. And Judah is the next in line. But he has abandoned his faith. Judah was the one who, who sold his brother into slavery. Judah is the one who gave up on his dad. Judah is the one who was probably the most incensed against the fact that his father had a favorite son and it wasn't him. Judah is the one who says, bag this. I'm going to go down and keep my sheep in the coastal lands. And I'm going to hang out with a Canaanite. And he's going to be my buddy. And I'm going to learn all my ways from him. And he marries himself a Canaanite woman. He has two sons. Three sons. And his oldest son marries a woman by the name of Tamar. In many ways, the story mirrors Eli Melech. Eli Melech leaves his place of inheritance, just like Judah does. He goes down to Moab with his family his two sons, and he lets his son marry a Moabite. Let's both of his sons marry Moabite women. Same kind of story, isn't it? Eli Melech dies. So do his two sons. But God spares Judah. Judah's sons die. They're wicked men. The first son dies, and Tamar is passed off to the second son so that she can be given a child and carry the name of the deceased. The same thing that's happening in Ruth. In fact, it's the only other place that we have the full story told. There may be some other, some other references in the scripture to the Leveret marriage, but this is, these are the two stories that we have. The story of Judah and Tamar and the story of Boaz and Ruth. So there are parallels, and we must see that. And we must learn from this, because God is telling us the same thing. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't shift. He's not... He's not, he, there's no shifting shadow with God. God is, he is steadfast, immovable. His message is the same. And so Judah gives Tamar to his second son, and his second son dishonors the Lord, dishonors Tamar, and refuses to give her what is her right and her due. Instead, uses her to his own advantage and for his own pleasure, but refuses to give her her inheritance and right and raise up in the name of his brother and heir. So God kills him too. Pretty tough story. I mean, the, the language is quite unambiguous. It says God killed him. Okay. Um, let's not get hung up there. So the third son, and Judah's like, uh-uh, I am not giving Tamar to my third son. 
not going to happen. He says to Tamar, go home, go home to your father's house and wait there and keep yourself and keep in mourning and whatever. And when my son is old enough, then I'll let you marry him too. But Judah has no intention of ever following through with that. You understand that Judah is no longer with his family. He's no longer living with Jacob. His father is no longer living with the rest of the clan. He has abandoned Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's God. It seems he has, he has flowed with the, with the culture of the land. He has integrated with the culture of the land. He has become a secular Hebrew, as it were. And so when his third son is old enough and he doesn't give Tamar to his third son, Tamar says, there's a promise that God has given. And Judah doesn't believe it, but I do. And she says, I don't know how we're ever going to redeem this family, but Judah needs to carry the line. And I'm going to carry that line in my womb. And I'm going to do whatever I have to to make that happen. No, I don't know. Maybe I'm putting words in her mouth. Maybe she was just interested in not being a widow anymore, being taken care of. Although she was being taken care of in her father's household. So it seems like she was okay economically. It seems pretty strong to me because of the way that she is honored by God through Scripture that there must have been an element of faith in what she did, though it's not specifically given to us in the text. You understand? What I'm seeing is that there must have been something inside of her, some chutzpah, that gave her a reason to risk her life by doing what she did. In Genesis 38, she dresses up like a prostitute. She finds out, First, that Judah is shearing sheep and is going to be coming by on a certain way. And she says, okay, I'm going to trap this guy. He's not going to give it to me righteously. I'm going to take it from him, even if it's unrighteous. Because I believe that there's a redeemer. And I cannot live if he doesn't come. So she does something that does not match our Christianity. It does not match New Testament ethics or morality. She would be stoned outside the city gate, and she nearly was. Burn her with fire, Judah says, until she hauls out the signet ring and the staff and the cloak and says, I am pregnant by the man to whom these belong. And Judah says, she is more righteous than I. And the story in Genesis 38 is about the redemption of Judah. Because the next thing we read about him, he's back with his father. The next thing we read about him, he's willing to put his own life at risk to go down and rescue his brother Benjamin. The next thing we know is that Judah is willing to take up the responsibility for his family once again because Tamar has redeemed him with her chutzpah. And God has redeemed them both by giving Tamar twins nonetheless. And she goes to give birth. A little hand comes out. It's not the way it's supposed to work. They tie a little cord around the hand. This is the one that came out first. Somehow they, they were quite convinced there's, there's, there's two of them in there, maybe even more. 
Well, they wrestled around, jostled around. He drew his hand back in, and next thing you know, out pops Perez. The firstborn. He wrestled his brother and came through the firstborn, and they called him Perez, the one who opens the breach. The one who steps into the breach. The one who makes the breach. And Perez becomes famous in all of Israel. Because it's not, it's not Judah's third son that carries the line. It's Judah's fourth son who carries the line. The one who steps into the breach. Judah, the fourth son. And Judah's fourth son. How fascinating. He steps into the breach and takes the role as the firstborn. And he becomes famous in all of Israel because from him come the greats like Nashon, the prince of Judah, and Salmon. Interestingly, Salmon is the son of Uri in one of the genealogies in First Chronicles chapter 4. But he's the son of Nashon and another, which seems to suggest that there was probably a little bit of adoption that took place. Probably some more stories of widows and orphans that took place in the line before we get to this lineage that we have right here. Turns out that he's a brother to, at least if through adoption, he's a brother to Bezalel, the one who makes the, the Ark of the Covenant. Just a fascinating family. But the greats like Nashon and Salmon pale in comparison to David. But Perez makes the breach, and he does it through his personality as well. Not just in his birth, but in his life, in his living, so he becomes ubiquitous. The name of Perez becomes a, 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 an idiom as such. The one who makes the breach. And in Micah, the same chapter that we have spoken about, where it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be higher than all the other mountains. The one where Bethlehem Ephratah is too small to even be a clan in Israel, but from there the king is going to come. Not David, but Christ. Interestingly enough, in Micah chapter 2, when there's this polemic against, against wickedness, God promises that he's going to bring redemption. And uh, in verse 12, he says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men, sheep, sheepfolds, flocks, the most famous sheepfolds in all of Israel is going to be Bethlehem. close enough to Jerusalem so that the lambs for slaughter can be raised in Bethlehem. The lambs for redemption can be raised in Bethlehem. I will gather them like a sheep, like sheep in a fold, like a flock in his pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. He who opens the breach, that's the name of Perez. Perez goes up before them. They break through, 
and pass the gate going out by it, their king passes on before them the Lord at their head. A prophetic statement about our king who is coming as one who breaks through and causes a breach and the whole army of his people, sheep from the fold, come out of that, through that breach, they break through. And so it is that the, so it is that the core value of the kingdom of God is faithfulness in Rachel and Leah and the willingness to break through in Judah and Tamar. Chesed and Chutzpah. Tamar had to be creative. And that's what the Lord loved. Boaz and Ruth had to be creative too. Because it wasn't the deliberate way for Boaz to marry Ruth. Boaz should have married Naomi. In chapter 3, Naomi says, to her daughter-in-law, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Naomi says, it's not about my well-being anymore. I want to seek the well-being of my daughter-in-law. Naomi says, because she has an awakening, somehow along the way she recognizes that this isn't about her, the story is bigger than her. Somehow she sees the love in her heart has grown so deep for her daughter-in-law that she says, I don't care if I live or die. I don't care about my own inheritance. I don't care about whether I'm going to be okay as a widow or not. I want to seek the well-being of my daughter-in-law. The Moabites, the one who doesn't belong. I want her to be at peace. I want her to be well. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? It's not Boaz, our relative. Naomi should have gone to Boaz to ask for redemption. Maybe not the leveret marriage, but for redemption. Purchase the property. Bring, just buy it back and give me the proceeds so I can live my life. But Naomi saw that there was a greater, better option. And the option was for her to forego her right and to give the right to somebody younger. And so instead of Naomi showing up at the threshing floor, which may have been more age appropriate because Boaz was the same generation as Eli Melech, Naomi's husband. Instead of Naomi going and charming Boaz and saying, take me. She gave up that right to the younger generation and said, let me seek your well-being. And the heart of nurturing was restored in her. In the same way, my friends, we ought to look not for our own well-being, but look to the well-being of others. Consider others of more important than yourself. 
Jesus teaches us this in the New Testament, does he not? Don't look for your own benefit. Don't look for your own advancement. Look for the advancement of others around you. This is the kingdom of heaven. Now, by all means, if you want to live your life the way your, the generations before you have lived, then go ahead and do it your own way. Do it the way they've always done it and live with the same consequences that everybody has always had. But if you want to see the redemption of the Lord, if you want to see this generation that's being raised up right now, not utterly lost, if you want to see them bear the child that might bear the child, that might bear the child, that welcomes and ushers in the king of all kings, then consider whether or not you might be willing to give up some of your comfort and your rights to see them, to see them redeemed. That is the power of the gospel. It is in giving, not receiving, that we are redeemed. So Naomi gives, and Ruth listens and goes down. And when Boaz wakes up and says, who is this? She says, not what he might be expecting. I am Naomi. She says, I am Ruth. And Boaz is utterly, utterly smitten. Let's introduce our younger generation to their Redeemer. Let's bring them to the feet of Christ. Let's not seek for our own spiritual, our own spiritual experience. Love Jesus and honor him. And he will give you all that you need. But seek to foster the encounter with Christ the younger generation. Let's pour into them. That is how the king will come. That is how a king will rule and reign over us. We must nurture. Otherwise, we will not see the king. We must nurture. We must suffer the little children to come unto him. We must. We must seek the well-being of the generation that is rising up among us. Pour yourselves out in prayer. Find ways to give. Support the work of the gospel in the lives of these here and all over the world. Do not miss your opportunity or else you will die old and barren. Seize your opportunity and you will carry the infant in your own arms. And one day that infant will care for you in your old age. That, my friends, is how we will build the church of our Lord Jesus Christ in our generation. So be it. Unto you, O Lord, be glory and honor, wisdom and power, majesty and might. Unto you, O Lord, we surrender our will and our ways. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. This is our prayer. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill this room with the power of the Holy Spirit.